Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Pastor Dan Montgomery, our head pastor. Uh, pastor Randy will be back from his vacation uh, just this week, so any day now. So he'll be back, Lord willing, in the pulpit here. So if you've only been here for like three weeks, you actually don't know who he is. Uh, he's been gone on his typical kind of beginning of fall vacation. So thankful for that opportunity for them, for him and Shirley. Um, we'll be thankful to have him back. Um, but this morning we're looking at Psalm uh, chapter 40, Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. And actually before I read that and pray, I just want to share with you a, a bittersweet memory. Uh, I have a bittersweet memory from June 2015. It involves the Chicago Blackhawks, Chicago's NHL hockey team. Uh, Many of you know I grew up in Chicagoland, and I also grew up as a a sports fanatic. So uh, growing up in the 90s, it was really easy to get excited about the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan, two three-peats, right? Dominance, great. Uh, Bears fan, just you did that. Uh, White Sox fan. And then Blackhawks fan, right? And all, throughout my life, all these teams had some highlights as well as some lowlights. Uh, for the past few years, the Blackhawks have definitely been a low light. But in the early 2010s, oh, the Blackhawks, they were a hot team. Uh, I can remember watching them win the Stanley Cup in 2010 with a number of friends. Uh, it was just an exciting time. There was a, a song that they would play every time they scored a goal throughout the playoffs. It's called Chelsea Dagger. And I can remember they won the championship, and then one of the radio stations just played that song for like an hour straight. People were blaring it from their cars. It was a great kind of togetherness time. Everyone's celebrating 2010 Stanley Cup champions. Uh, and they, they had a really solid core of young players, if you're following, if you remember. Uh, and so in 2013, they won again. And this was really exciting because... In the clinching game of the Stanley Cup Finals, they scored twice in 17 seconds to come back and win. That just never happens in hockey. That was one of the most exciting sports things I've ever watched. So that was really exciting. But then two seasons later, same core, they won again. And I, I can remember watching them in 2015 defeat the Tampa Bay Lightning. I was watching on my laptop, sitting on the balcony of our apartment over on uh, Oxbow, over on Sertoma there. Um, and, and so this was great. Three Stanley Cups in about five seasons. That's amazing. It doesn't happen very often. The Blackhawks have been around since 1926. They've won six times. Three of those are in this five-year stretch. Very exciting. Um, but I said this was a bitter sweet memory, not just a sweet memory. Why is that? Well, here's the deal. I had no one to watch that championship with. I know there's hockey fans around here and maybe even some Chicago Blackhawks fans, and, but we, we had just moved here a few months before, and I didn't know where to find any of my fellow fans, so I watched all by my lonesome. Uh, and as you probably know, so much of the joy of watching and cheering and celebrating gets diminished by not being able to share it. Right? Part of the joy of sports, as with so many other things in life, is the joy of sharing that experience. Not just having it, but sharing it. In fact, sports are not the main time or place in which this principle is true. What is true for sports is massively more true for our experiences of God's grace. Part of the joy of the gospel is being able to talk about it and share it with others, to testify to God's goodness. And the goodness of the good news actually increases as we, as as a psalmist will put it in the psalm we're going to read in just a moment, as he puts it, 
as we get to tell the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation, right? the joy multiplies. It increases when we can share it. So I ask you now to, to stand as I'm going to read Psalm 40. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. So even though our main passage is verses 9 and, uh, verses nine and 10, I'm going to read 1 through 10, and then I will pray. And our prayer this morning is actually based on Psalm 103. But first, follow along with me, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 10. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Let's pray. Lord, as the psalmist says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of your benefits. And so, Lord, we praise you for what you do, what you have done. You're the one who forgives our iniquity, who heals our diseases, who redeems our lives from the pit. You're the one who has crowned us with steadfast love and mercy. You've satisfied us with good so that our youth could be renewed like the eagles. We praise you for what you've done and what you do for us. We also praise you for what you have not done because you do not always chide. You do not keep your anger forever. You do not deal with us according to our sins. You do not repay us according to our iniquities. So, Lord, we praise you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love towards we who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. We praise you and thank you for your grace that just as a father shows compassion to his children, so you show compassion to we who fear you. And and Lord, we ought not forget all of your benefits and your goodness 
But as we're gathered here this morning, we confess and admit and lament that for many reasons, and for many of us, those benefits seem distant. Our sin is before us. For many of us, our lives are, are marked, our, just our minds are clouded by broken relationships where there used to be joy. For many of us, our lives are marked and hampered by the consequences of our own sin. For others, it's sickness that clouds our days. It just sticks to us. We see loved ones returning to the dust from which we first came. For us, we admit it seems our youth is not renewed as you promised, at least not right now. So Lord, we specifically pray this morning for those who are sick that you would give them the moment-by-moment grace they need. You would would attend to them with your gift of health. We pray for those families that are broken that you would give your gift of reconciliation. We pray for those whose, whose children are far from you, that you would not move them to despair, but continue with them uh, to give hope and to continue steadfastly in prayer. Lord, be with us in all of our weaknesses. Thank you, Lord, that you know our frame. You remember that we are mere dust. From dust we came to dust we return. You know that our days are like grass. We're like the flower of the field with the wind passing over it and then one day it's gone after the day after its glory. Thank you, though, that also your steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. Thank you for Christ who took on flesh and kept your covenant and all your commandments and now having been raised from the dead and ascended on high rules over all. Praise to Christ who is our Lord. So this morning, Lord, I ask that you would Just enliven our souls, our minds, our bodies, our whole selves, our whole being in the hearing and living of your word. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. As we look at our two short verses this morning, I just want to ask three questions. Three questions. Do you have glad news? Have you shared this news? Oh, yeah, and what's this news about? The first question is, do you have glad news? David in our psalm says he has told the glad news of deliverance. There in verse 9, I've told the glad news of deliverance. And you ask, well, what, what is this news that he's talking about? What's happened to David that he's been delivered? And you can start to figure that out as you look up earlier in the psalm. You look up in verse 1 you see that David was praying to the Lord and waiting patiently, right? I waited patiently for the Lord. So he was in some sort of place in which he had no deliverance but the Lord. But he can now say that, as he continues to say in verse 1, that he inclined to me and heard my cry, right? The Lord answered his prayer. The Lord, he, he drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. 
So David gives us this picture of being in this pit of destruction or an alternative metaphor of this being in this miry bog and then being lifted out and set into a solid place under a rock with secure steps. The opposite of a pit of destruction or a miry bog. And you say, okay, well, what, what specifically is David's life situation as he's praying this prayer? Is, is, it, is it maybe when he was a young shepherd boy and there was just some, uh, some danger that had arisen as he was defending his family's flock? Maybe it was sometime after he'd gained the adoration of the Israelites by uh, being used by the Lord to take down that giant Goliath. And so he'd gained the adoration of the Israelites, uh, but also the jealousy of Saul. And he found himself on the run for years on end. Maybe this was the moment he found himself in the pit of destruction. Those are possible options. Could have been actually when he was an old man. When his son Absalom formed a military coup and took over Jerusalem, forcing David to live on the run, right? Reliving all those youthful years on the run, fleeing for his life. Or maybe it's some other time in his life recorded for, uh, not recorded for us. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, what specific situation was David praying this the very first time he wrote this? Uh, we don't know. We don't need to know. And I don't even think we're supposed to know. The point is, David has been rescued. And as you learn about his life, you see it has happened many times over. The Lord has proven himself over and over and over to David. Uh, he's had the, the same experience that uh, the hymn writer John Newton talks about in Amazing Grace when he writes that through, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And David has been through many dangers, toils, and snares. But the Lord has brought him through them all. And so as we get to verse 9, we clearly see that David has glad news of deliverance to tell. So their question then is, do you? Where have you found yourself walking through many dangers, toils, and snares? Where have you found yourself in a deadly pit? in a miry bog, stuck, helpless in your life. You know, there's a foundational theological truth that, in one sense, we're all dependent upon God for every breath, every day, every sunrise, every meal. We're in constant need of God's provision there's a sense in which we're delivered from death every time you feel a hunger pain and then go to the refrigerator and find a snack. You've been delivered. That's the Lord's provision. Every time you lay down in bed at the end of the day, tired, and you receive a good night's rest, that's the Lord's deliverance of you and your weakness and your inability to just keep going on and on without sleep. The Lord has delivered us over and over again in these small ways. But more than that, I think some of us know what we might call deeper pits that we've been in. I mean, how many of us have faced a diagnosis 
or a prognosis that has led us to the end of ourselves and our own ability. Right? You've been in that doctor's office. You can still picture what it looks like. Right? Maybe it was a diagnosis about yourself or a parent or a child. And you had this understanding. You, you knew the situation. You had this great, precise, scientific description of your situation. And all it did was highlight your helplessness. You were in a miry bog. And in some way or another, the Lord has delivered you. Some of us, through healing, we can testify that I was there and that is now in my past. That cancer is gone. That disease is gone. It is in my past. And for others of us, or ultimately, for all of us, it's been deliverance through the hope of the resurrection, right? You're not defeated. Death has lost its ultimate sting. That diagnosis and prognosis has lost its ultimate sting. Maybe it's been some other life situation. We think of Paul's and Timothy's ministry situation that was read about in our, uh, our scripture reading from earlier. Right? From 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and following, where Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Uh, Asia, by the way, is, you don't think, don't think Cambodia, think Turkey, right? Kind of the eastern edge of the Roman Empire there. So when Paul and Timothy were there in Asia, he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's a miry bog. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, right? They are in the pit of destruction. And Paul gives a little interpretation. He knows why they were there. He says, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, right? If he was relying on himself, they were hopeless. End of the ministry, end of life, it was not going on. But he says, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, who lifts us up out of miry bogs and pits of destruction, right? He delivered us from suddenly such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul knows what David knew. The Lord is the deliverer. But maybe there's a spiritual pit of your own digging you found yourself in. Right Later in this psalm, uh, actually not long after where I stopped reading, David says that evils have, encomp- have encompassed me beyond number. He says that in verse 12. And then he gets more specific. Oh, what sort of evils? Is it someone chasing you down? Is it some great enemy? Is it a disease? What is it? He says, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Right? Has sin ever gotten a hold of you in such a way that you could say you were in that pit of destruction David admits this is where he was at. His sins have grown up so high around him that he cannot see. Has the Lord ever delivered you from this? We have glad news of deliverance. Ultimately, we all find ourselves facing wrath 
for our sins. That's the pit of destruction we all find ourselves in. And this is exactly the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. Just there in the very beginning, these famous verses. verses. Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, once walked. Right? That's a pit of destruction. Dead in trespasses and sins. But God rescued us from that pit of destruction that you and I deserve. That just wrath. He's rescued us from it. He did this by entering into that pit himself and taking on our humanity. He knew no sin. He committed no sin. But he took on our sin. He hung on that cross and he went down into that grave so that all who cling to him by faith, admitting that we're need, in need of rescue from that pit of sin, can be raised to life. That's exactly what Paul explains as he continues on in Ephesians 2, where he goes on in verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. He indeed has set our feet upon a rock and made us secure. So the question is, do you have glad news? Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You have been raised with him. You've been seated with him in the heavenly places. And it's not even your own doing. It's a gift of God. You've got nothing to boast about, but you do have good news to talk about. Nothing to boast about, but plenty of good news to talk about. So our second question, have you shared this news? David, in verses 9 and 10, seems like he's bending over backwards to make it clear that he has told others what God has done for him. It says someone has accused him of keeping it to himself. Right? Someone has been singing that song, like, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. David, you did that. David, you hid it under a bushel. And David's like, no, no, no. I let it shine. I did not hide it under a bushel. I let it shine. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 and 15 that you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And it's as if David's been accused of lighting that lamp, having God light that lamp for him, maybe more accurately put, and then he put it under a basket. And David's like, no, that is not what has happened. Listen to the way he's tripping over himself to make it clear that he hasn't done this. He goes back and forth from positive ways of asserting it to negative, like, denials. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know. You say, well, David, have you hidden it in your heart? He says, no, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. Have you spoken of his faithfulness and salvation? He says, yes, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David here is modeling for us what a joyful duty the redeemed have to testify to others about what has happened to them. 
It doesn't even matter who you're telling. Who did David tell? He wasn't a missionary in the traditional sense. He wasn't even really an evangelist as we think about it. Do you see who he tells? He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I think this is a situation there where David has brought an offering of thanks into the sanctuary. And he doesn't just do it kind of privately, like, oh, i got to go do my duty. God delivered me, and so the right thing to do is bring this offering. And uh, others are probably going to see me there, but I'm just going to keep to myself. No, he let everyone know why he was there. I have not keep this hidden within my heart. I have not concealed it. No, people know why I'm there to make this offering of thanksgiving. I have not concealed it. He's told it to the others in the sanctuary, his fellow Israelites. This is how it's supposed to work. We're rescued to proclaim. We actually see this pattern throughout Scripture. Uh, pay attention to the logic of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, as I read it. Pay attention to the logic here. 1 Peter in, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Right? That is all Peter's description of people who've been rescued. Right? That's Peter's description in this moment of those who've been drawn out of a pit and set upon a rock. We could, if this was a sermon on that passage, we would unpack why he uses those images. Uh, but this is not a sermon on that passage, so we won't. But just know those are Peter's images for what it means to be rescued. So he says, you've been rescued. It's a quick summary. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? He's made you into something new in order that you may proclaim. Right? A huge part of God's rescue plan, his plan of redemption, is when he rescues people, he turns us all into preachers of one sort or another in order to proclaim. This can be really challenging in a day when religion is thought of and really preferred to be a private thing. We live in a day and age of private religion. There's pressures to, yes, that's great for you, but keep it to yourself. Um, I think of the way even this, this pressure isn't just an American thing, but it plays out a little bit differently in the United Arab Emirates. I feel like I bring up the UAE every time I preach, but it's just a helpful illustration because my brother-in-law is a pastor there, so we'll have conversations about what's life and ministry like there. The United Arab Emirates, there in the Middle East, they actually have um, the Constitution states that the the country's official religion is Islam, but but there is constitutionally guaranteed freedom to worship. Right? So there in the UAE in Dubai, where he's at, there is freedom to worship. The government, and in general, respects this freedom. However, there's a qualification to that freedom, a little asterisk next to it, some fine print. Christians are free to live there, have churches. They, they, They can have their worship services there. But they cannot attempt to spread Christianity to Muslims 
free to have freedom of worship, but not freedom to use the technical word proselytize. Can't share the good news with Muslims trying to convince them to convert. So I ask you, do they actually have political freedom to worship if you don't have freedom to proselytize, to share? Can you have freedom to worship if you don't actually have the freedom and the ability to pass it along? I think for worshipers, for Jesus, for those who've been made alive together with him, we've been made into worshipers that we may proclaim his excellencies to others. You don't really have true, full worship unless you also have sharing, testifying, telling others. Worship and witness, praise and testimony. Drawing in others actually completes not just God's glory, but our joy in it. This was a really insightful point made by by C.S. Lewis in his Reflections on the Psalms. C.S. Lewis, if you you don't know who he is, he was a Christian author, uh, British author in the middle of the 20th century. I highly recommend uh, giving him a read. You probably know at least the Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan. That's what you know from C.S. Lewis. But he had many other uh, writings that are worth, uh, worth your attention. And in his Reflections on the Psalms, He's just commenting on the fact that the psalmists are always telling everyone to praise God. Always telling people what to, what to do. Praise God. But he makes this observation that, you know what? The world rings with praise. It's just filled with praise. Lovers are praising their lover, like Romeo and praising Juliet and vice versa. Right? Readers are always praising their favorite poet or author. Walkers are praising the countryside or who doesn't come back from a vacation in the mountains saying, oh, you're at Yellowstone. Did you get to see this place? This place is amazing. You know, we praise the places we've been, right? Players praising their favorite game. I guess I was doing that a little bit earlier as I was recounting some of these memories of watching the Blackhawks, right? We're praising things. We praise weather. We praise wines. We praise dishes. We praise actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, Flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and C.S. Lewis even goes so far as to say, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. And he says, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join in Praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? Isn't that what David is modeling here? We see the glory. We taste the glory. We know it's praiseworthy. And it just completes the joy to say, isn't it amazing? Have you seen what he's done? So as much as we have this cultural pressure to keep it to yourself, I'm not sure we can. I'm not sure it's in our best interest to do that. I was, I was thankful for the testimony of uh, a, a basketball writer, actually, of all people, uh, that I heard about a week and a half ago. There's a 
a writer by the name of Jonathan Charks, who was a basketball writer and podcaster for a website called The Ringer. Um, if you were in my Ecclesiastes, the Ecclesiastes Sunday School we had uh, last, last spring, I'd actually mentioned him. Um, he was actually suffering from, from terminal cancer in, just the, in the spring, but recently passed away, unfortunately. But he was a well-known Christian as well as a well-known sports writer. And he worked with a lot of non-Christians. The world he kind of walked in was an incredibly secular world. But after he passed away, he was so beloved that there was an episode of the, the, the main podcast from, uh, from The Ringer that was just a memorial to him, just some of his closest co-workers talking about what it was like to work with him, what, was, what, what they appreciated about him. And they just noted how much his work was, was, was just shaped by his faith that they all knew about. And, and just as they're com- talking in conversation, uh, they're talking about what's different. He says, yeah, one of the hosts says, yeah, a lot of it came from his faith, which he would talk about it. He would talk about it on podcasts, right, even before he was sick. He would talk about when he, when he hung out with him. It was a big part of who he was. In a, in a weird way, or maybe not in a weird way, it kind of shaped his writing because there was like a serenity to it. And that was one of the things I really enjoyed about reading him and listening to him. So they know just how it was woven into everything he, he worked on. And then this is the best part. At the end, one of the hosts just mentioned, you know, he could convert you if you weren't careful. And I mean that in a nice way. He was always like, his way is the best way. And it was like coming to this side with a vibe that, by the way, was pretty seductive. Jonathan Sharks had, had, had good news, and he couldn't keep it to himself. A testimony of people who didn't even really have categories for what he was talking about show that to be true. Jonathan Sharks had good news and couldn't keep him to himself. Do you? Then our final question, who is this news about? What are we talking about when we share this good news? I think as we look at our passage this morning, we see that this good news is not really mainly about ourselves or even about what's happened to us. It's about God. Who is this news about? It's about God. See who, see what David keeps referring to. Verse 10 of Psalm 40. I have not hidden your deliverance Within my heart, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. There could be a temptation when we've been changed by God, when we've been rescued by Him, to make our talk about Him and what has happened to us mostly about us. I used to be like this, and now I'm like this. That's great to share. Wow, I tell you, when I first experienced God's grace, it felt like this, and we share that, and that becomes the headline. There's a real temptation to kind of make our experience and what has happened to us the main thing. But notice that David doesn't talk about what's happened to him. That's part of the reason we don't really know what's happened to him. When in his life did this happen? There's not really clues 
because he's not talking about himself. He's pointing to God. Often the, the wow factor of our story can be the main thing. I was thinking as I was preparing this of a, a song from 2008. So I'm not up on the latest Christian songs or any songs. Um, that's fine. 2008 is about my like. I, I was kind of surprised and I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of a current song. And it was from 2008. Um, there's a Christian rapper by the name of Shy Lin who wrote a song called Testify. And in each verse, he tells a story about someone who came to saving faith. And in the first verse, it's an amazing story about a guy named Mike Brown. He's from Chicago, and he ended up actually, he had such a troubled youth, he ended up behind bars by the time he was 14. Thankfully, as through God's gracious providence, his parole officer connected him with a boxing trainer who was a Christian. And one thing leads to another. Mike Brown can complain, as it's said in the song, I used to be a thug, but now I'm a believer. Praise God, right? And the next verse is about Sue from St. Lou. Sue from St. Louis, but the rhyme was better from Sue from St. Lou, right? And Sue was, as the verse tells us, a smart skeptic who thought Christians didn't make any sense. And she heads off to Princeton on a full-ride scholarship. You wouldn't think at that moment she's any closer to experiencing God's grace. But her freshman year roommate, whose name we're told is Kristen, was a Christian. And Christian, Kristen, the Christian, gave Sue a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which led her down a path of the Lord grabbing a hold of her and, and making her new. Again, amazing story. Who saw that coming? And scripture has plenty of dramatic stories too, right? Paul himself was hunting down Christians when the risen Lord appeared to him on the Damascus road. But I liked Shailin's third verse, his third story. It's about a girl named Cece. And we're told her, her parents had a rock-solid marriage and her life always, as the line says, always had the true God in the mix because her parents understood Deuteronomy 6. It's a good rhyme. And what he's referring to there is right in Deuteronomy 6-7, where the Israelites are commanded, you shall teach all the things God has done to your children diligently. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. And so Cece's testimony is simply, I ain't got no horror story. God saved me in my youth. I give him all the glory. I ain't got no horror story. God saved me in my youth. I give him all the glory. Right? What could be more gracious than saving someone from years of foolishly wasting their life, given over to sin and selfishness and unfruitfulness? Right? So if you don't think your story makes much of a story, if you don't have a horror story, praise God. Because our, our goal is not to have a dramatic story that catches people's attention. No, it's a point to God's beauty, his goodness, his glory. It's to make known the riches of his grace, to point to him. That's exactly what David has claimed to do here. And it's what's called upon for us. Your deliverance, your faithfulness, your salvation, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness. That's what David points to. And so we see as we get to the New Testament and Christ has died and been raised and he ascended, 
And you see that the big reason the Holy Spirit comes down, the big reason the Holy Spirit has been given to us is if you remember back in Acts 1.8, Jesus, right before he ascended, he told his disciples, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit's given to give us this power. It's this Holy Spirit power that gives us the power to be his witnesses. I mean, you ever thought about the fact, the, the fact that the apostles needed the Holy Spirit to bear witness? I mean, they were there. They were eyewitnesses. Do you don't think Thomas touching those wounds had all he needed to bear witness about his Lord? I mean, they needed to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to be given so that you would have power to be witnesses. God comes to dwell with us, empowering us centuries later to be his witnesses. What grace! Right? God has rescued us. Grace! God has called us to testify to others about his steadfast love and faithfulness, but this is grace too because he's given us the gift that empowers us to do it the Holy Spirit, his very self. So this should be freeing. This should be freeing. This is not a burden that, oh, you've, you've tasted, but you haven't told. Hope you feel guilty. No, this is freeing. God, you're, you're, you're not the messenger. Or I should at least say, you're not the message. You're the God-empowered messenger. It's not on your shoulder and your strength or your artfulness or anything like that. God has raised us up and empowered us to point to him, to know God and make him known, as we say around here. So our call is declare it, declare this good news in the great congregation. This is the encouragement we all need. So share it in your Sunday school classes, in your coffee conversations, in your prayer group, and in your small group. Speak of the goodness of God. Testify to what he's done week after week. Share it with your family. Share it with your children, with your siblings, with your parents. Where is God's goodness showing up in your life? Bring this good news out into the darkness. Right? Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Right? As Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. It's our delightful duty to pass it on. So, so praise to the God who's, who draws us up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog, who sets our feet on a rock, makes our steps secure. Praise to God the Father and Holy Spirit who puts a new song in our mouth. Through the testimony he empowers, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us your grace to us, that you've rescued us, not out of some trap we fell into undeservedly, but actually our own sin, our own rebellion against you. You entered in to the destruction we deserve to rescue us. Fill us with the joy of that.
and give us the power and the desire and the love, all that we need to declare it in the great congregation, to declare it in the darkness, to not be ashamed of what you've done and who you are and what you've called us to be. So empower this um, by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.